This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon to all. My name is Amir Eshel. I'm the director of the European Forum at the Freeman Scoggle Institute for International Studies. And tonight's event is co-hosted by the Freeman Spogli Institute of International Studies, the European Forum, and the Stanford Humanities Center. And we are very happy, pleased, and honored to host here Christopher Hitchens. During uh, the last year, the European Forum presented to the Stanford community a variety of events dealing with the ways in which European nations, European societies, dealt with the recent uh, uh, terrorist attacks on European soil, the Madrid bombings, the London uh, bombings, uh, the riots in France, and so on. We're very happy that we are, in a way, uh, concluding this year with today's event, uh, hoping that the discussion following the presentation would allow us to reflect on other talks we had had uh, as well. Our speaker this evening, Christopher Hitchens, hardly needs an introduction. I'm convinced that you already know him as a writer, journalist, and critic. You know him as the thought-provoking public intellectual, as an intense supporter of democracy, and a severe critic of what he calls, and I quote, political scum. You know him as a contrarian, as someone who does not make sure, who does make sure that his opinion will be heard and discussed. Let's wait for more people to sit. Christopher Hitchens' name is ubiquitous in the blogosphere these days, where he's leveraged and thrown down by the left and the right, as someone nearly as controversial as the president or the Iraq war. You have likely come here tonight with an opinion about Christopher Hitchens and opinions about his views on America and its relation, relationship to the Middle East. You may have come just to see what will happen in light of his encounters with people like Noam Chomsky and others. We at the European Forum have invited Christopher Hitchens to speak because he is a thinker and a writer with whom we believe one should engage. The writers of books such as Thomas Jefferson, Love, Poverty and War, Journeys and Essays and A Long Short War, The Postponed Liberation of Iraq, Christopher Hitchens is also contributing, a contributing editor to Vanity Fair and has written prol prolifically for periodicals including The Nation, Harper's, The New York Review of Books, Newsweek, The Times Literary Supplement, and The Washington Post. He began his career in England in the uh, 1970s as a writer for the New Statements and the Evening Standard. He then worked for London's Daily Express, the New Statesman, and as the Washington editor for Harper's. From 1986 to 1992, he was the book critic at the New York Newsday. Christopher Hitchens has taught as a visiting professor at the University of California in Berkeley, that distinguished institution across the Bay, the University of Pittsburgh, and the New School of Social Research. His address, his talk to us today, is titled The War on Terror Revisited. Christopher Hitchens, welcome back. I should say, to Stanford University. Thank you very much. 
of all the introductions that I've had to listen to, to myself, that's certainly the most recent. Um, it's also very, it's very handsome of you, very generous uh, of you indeed, and of you, ladies and gentlemen, to come on such a beautiful day, supplying me with practically English weather uh, with which to compete. Um, I should briefly give you my mission statement, which is the following. I take it that people like yourselves come to meetings like this not just to listen but to, but to talk and to ask and to inquire and to debate. So though I may end up doing the bulk of the talking, I will try and keep my initial remarks to the bare minimum. Um, my second mission statement is that I don't leave uh, while anyone can say that I didn't answer one of their questions. Don't try me too high on this, but I will, once we're thrown out, I will be quite happy to have um, a cigarette in the quad with you and so forth. I don't run from any question. I won't have it said that I do, but cocktail hour will start to be pressing about that point. So I, I call upon your humane and decent instincts as well as your combative ones. Um, when, I was, when I was researching my book on Thomas Jefferson, I came across material that I hadn't quite expected to find in the way that I had. Uh, been, well, anticipating. Um, it's, I think, no longer taught very much in American schools. The, uh, the first war in which the United States took part, the, the first war overseas, that's to say, uh, the first time the American flag was ever planted on foreign soil, after Mr. Jefferson became president for the first time in 1800. Um, he had long meditated a war, a punitive war, against the Barbary states, as they're called in American history and vernacular. Uh, it would be more proper to call them the, the states of the Ottoman Empire in North Africa. Um, they were called Barbary because of the uh, homonym between Barbary and Berber, which is the large non-Arab speaking Muslim population of that area. Uh, we would now call them uh, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia and Libya. They had a control position, if you like, uh, at the Straits of Gibraltar, the Pillars of Hercules, <coughs> commanding the approaches uh, to the Mediterranean from the Atlantic and vice versa. This a stranglehold position. And um, the best historians now estimate Linda Colley in her recent brilliant book, Captives, would be my locus classicus that between, say, 1750, roughly 1750, and about 1815, 1820, upwards of a million and a half Europeans uh, and Americans, uh, white people, let's be uh, not mince words about it, were taken as slaves uh, by these states and uh, sometimes redeemed as hostages, but most often impressed into servitude, as were their ships and as were their uh, properties, um, ranged quite a long way north, as well as into the Atlantic into the Mediterranean. The whole Irish town of Baltimore, on one night uh, in the late 18th century, was taken off the land and, and crammed onto ships and taken to North Africa to be enslaved, for example. They reached as far north as Iceland. They're very good navigators, very good fighters. In the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson compares the vile King George III uh, to the filthy practices of non-Christian states in maintaining a slave trade. It was, I think, at least that early that he decided that when he could do it, he would go to war uh, and end this state of affairs. 
I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but before he went that far, and before he was able to use John Adams's navy for this purpose, which is why the first line of the United States Marine Anthem begins, as you probably know, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. If you ever wonder what that's about, it's Mexico in the first case, North Africa in the second. Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon of the Marine Corps first planted the Stars and Stripes in warfare uh, in that way. Uh, before that, he and John Adams went to meet and treat with the ambassador of the Ottoman states in London, Ambassador Abdurrahman. And he received them in his house in, I think, in, in Grosvenor Square. And they asked him, Mr. Adams and Mr. Jefferson, American diplomacy was a little more elevated in those days than the point of the people it could call upon as its envoys. Uh, they asked him by what right he did this to American ships, to American citizens, to American civilians, and American trade. And he answered them by saying that it was given him by the right of the Quran. And they came back to him and said, look, the United States took no part in the Crusades. The United States took no part in the Reconquista of Catholic Spain, the recovery of Andalusia from Moorish control. The United States had no quarrel uh, with any Muslim country. Indeed, and it's a thing that I would say one in, one in 10 million Americans know, uh, there is still, as the law of this land, the Treaty of Tripoli of 1798, which states explicitly, it was voted explicitly by both houses, uh, saying that the United States considers itself in no respect to be a Christian country. If you run into a fundamentalist who says otherwise, you can point to a treaty that has the force of law. It was explicitly repudiated. The United States had any religious character of any sort, and certainly that it was not Christian. And it was added further that the United States had no quarrel with the Muslim, as it put it in the text, the Muslim religion. Uh, the ambassador, Abdurrahman, said, that doesn't matter. The Quran gives us the right to make slaves of all infidels, uh, whether they uh, make assertions of this kind or not. And I think it was at that point that Jefferson decided that as soon as he could uh, seize the reins of office, that he would go to war with this proposition, uniting as it did the two things he most detested, namely organized religion and monarchy, uh, the sultans and bays and days of North Africa. Well, I think this bit of history is worth knowing and also worth dwelling upon a bit because um, I was asked to talk a little about the European dimension of our current crisis um, in relation to the North American one. And I think it's very intriguing to inquire at what point it was that the European attitude to Islam, as it were, reversed itself, as did the American one, if you see what I mean. If the, in other words, the synchronicity uh, was reversed, that you couldn't get an American saying, uh, we don't have any quarrel with Islam, it's the Europeans you're looking for. Um, and the Europeans couldn't very well go around saying that uh, if it wasn't for the Americans, uh, we'd get along perfectly well with the Muslim religion and with the Muslim states, uh, which is the rather banal way in which the New York Times say, or the Washington Post would phrase this argument now. Uh, for a very long time, and in fact in my living memory, um, to say that someone, like an ill-behaved child, for example, or a hooligan, uh, was acting like a Turk, would have been second nature to most people, certainly to my parents and grandparents' generation. The memory of the long struggle against the caliphate uh, was a very intense one. Um, and it goes back to 
G.K. Chesterton's wonderful Catholic poem, uh, Lepanto, about the final defeat in a fleet which had Miguel Cervantes as one of its uh, volunteer uh, sailors um, of the Turkish fleet just after it had captured Cyprus and just, after, just before it could capture Malta, the two great island fortresses that had been held by the Knights Crusader and the Crusader orders uh, of later years. It, it goes as far as the gates of Vienna, the historic battle where a Polish army finally in the nick of time came to the rescue under the cross of the Austro-Hungarian forces on a date which I calculate to be, by the way, uh, the 11th of September of that year. But it depends entirely on which time zone you're talking about. Um, and it was in some ways a two-day battle. Some historians have it on the 10th of September, the, the, the dispatch of the Turkish army in front of Vienna. But I would place it on the 11th if you really asked me. And I think I'm the only person to put this in print. It is extremely unlikely, it seems to me, that the forces that wish to restore the caliphate and which believe in sign and symbol and dream and superstition and prophecy picked a nothing date for their grandest of all operations. It may be one of the many things, indeed, about this that they know and we do not. But this was all a very European question. And Jefferson and Adams were quite right to say it did not involve the United States at all or in the least. There was no implication morally or politically or strategically, and they could have gone on saying this, I think, for quite some time. It was, after all, after 1945, the United States that particularly pressed uh, Britain, uh, France, and Spain to abandon its colonies in North Africa and allow them to become independent countries with seats at the United Nations, in particular, uh, John F. Kennedy is remembered for the stand he took against the bizarre French claim, not just that Algeria was its colony, but that Algeria was a part of France. Um, I leapfrog when I mention Kennedy, a very important date, 50th anniversary of which will be this autumn, in October 1956, when the British government and the French government entered into a secret collusion with the government of Israel in order to reoccupy the, the canal zone, the Suez Canal zone in Egypt and the Gaza Strip, hoping by this means first to solve Israel's problem with the Fedahin operating across its relatively new borders, second to uh, indulge the French belief uh, that Colonel Nasser was the secret route, Fons et Origo Malorum, of all their troubles in Algeria, that if it wasn't for Nasser, the FLN would go away and also the British nostalgia to reclaim uh, Egypt and the approaches to the canal and, and hold on to Cyprus, an extraordinary invasion that preoccupied the whole world for a month in October of 1956, half a century ago, and which had the tragic outcome in addition of diverting international attention from the uh, heroic events in Hungary, in Budapest that same month when the Hungarians attempted to force their way out of the incarceration of their country by Joseph Stalin, the, late, the then late Joseph Stalin in the Warsaw Pact. There's a lot of drama here, there's so much more of it than I can cope with and more than, than uh, one needs to go round, as it were, but I'm just sketching the point of uh, the Anglo-American, Anglo-European, America-European dialectic. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, to put it shortly, the then President of the United States, in the last month of an election campaign, an election year, uh, said to Israel that if they weren't out bag and baggage 
lock, stop, and barrel of Gaza and the Canal Zone by a given date, which was, I think, only seven days. In advance, uh, it would be made illegal to sell Israel bonds on the New York Stock Exchange. Quite difficult now to imagine an American president making a statement of this kind. But he meant it, and they knew he meant it, and they did put out. He also said to the British government that if they didn't get out in roughly the same time, that the dollar reserve support and Fort Knox gold support would be withdrawn from the pound sterling, and it was withdrawn. The pound sterling went through the floor, and President Eisenhower was, in, in effect, able to nominate the next British Prime Minister after the collapse of Sir Anthony Eden, who went off for a long giggling rest in, the, Sir, in Ian Fleming's house in Jamaica. I'm now wandering a bit from my point, but it's too good to miss. Goldeneye, uh, the rest he'd long needed a man under what we used to call tremendous emotional stress. Um, President Eisenhower was more or less able to nominate uh, Harold Macmillan to be his replacement. Those were the days, in other words, where for the United States, the issue of independence for Arab and Muslim countries and autonomy for them was something that it was willing to contest with European states and willing to contest with itself, so to speak, no baggage, uh, no historical baggage at all. And if the riposte was, well, the United States supports Israel, the answer was not that, not that much. We insist that they say where their borders are. We insist that uh, we, that's the United States, uh, say that if they want to represent all Jews in the world and hope they all move to Palestine, we have to suspect them of wishing for an expansionist program, unless they say otherwise, because there isn't room under the present borders for this. So when did this change and what has it meant? Well, I've been into it a, a, a lot, and I, I think that the hinge moment is probably uh, 1967, when it becomes evident to President Johnson that the Israelis both can and probably will uh, disable the Arab armies of particularly the United Arab Republic, as it then was, United Egypt and Syria, but also possibly Jordan, that they will not allow the state of affairs to get to critical mass. They will need extra weaponry to do it, but that they are able on their own, for, the, for now, to destroy any potential enemy before it leaves the ground. And, but that this may involve him in a moving of Israel's borders a little further than they currently extend. And from the papers that I've been able to read from that time, it seems very likely, at least, that President Johnson broke with the tradition of his predecessors on this because he, as a Democrat, and more of a liberal than some people remember, really hoped that American Jews could be persuaded to support the Vietnam War and thought that if he made this concession to Israel, he might be able to break the apparent iron grip of New Deal leftism on American Jews who just wouldn't come up for his policy in Vietnam, uh, which they didn't, uh, to their, I think, very much their credit, uh, but which was at least part of a policy in which uh, the domestic politics and ethnic politics of the United States became rather critically involved in its foreign policy, which is a point not ever to miss or to overlook. Now, if you take that as the hinge moment and see now the way in which it is Europeans who feel more apparently tender about the susceptibilities of Islamic states and movements, and the United States much less so. Um, you can't date it all back to 67, but I think you can't date it any earlier or later than that. Okay, I'm keeping my eye on the clock, don't worry. Um, 
Well, how does this uh, cultural or ethnographic element manifest itself? And I was asked to talk about events that have taken place this year, and I'm glad because that's, this year is enough. Uh, I, I hope you didn't mind my background a bit. In the last few weeks, I've had long discussions with three people, three senior European figures. The first one is Oriana Falacci, who some of you will know. I'll, I'll tell you a bit more in a second if you don't. The second is Fleming Rose, the editor of a, an afternoon newspaper in Copenhagen, recently famous for its caricature policy. And the third is Ayan Hashi Ali, a Somali woman originally, who as an immigrant to Holland became a member of parliament, first for the Labour and then for the Liberal parties, and has been a considerable force in the Dutch affairs, and affairs beyond the borders of the Netherlands too. This, I'll just give you a brief account of what I learned from talking to these three quite salient individuals, and then I'll mention one more better known person, and then I'll probably begin to draw my remarks to a close. Well, Oriana Falacci, to people of my age, was the, the most famous female journalist in the world. She interviewed everybody. Henry Kissinger says the worst mistake he ever made was to be interviewed by her. Uh, if you read the interview, you'll see why he says that. Um, she's the only person to who have interviewed both the Shah and Ayatollah Khomeini, I think Khomeini twice, uh, Arafat, um, innumerable others, to have been involved in a number of European and other resistance movements. She comes herself originally from the Italian anti-fascist uh, resistance, as does her family, a uh, very celebrated, very charismatic woman on the Italian left, um, and a, a great internationalist and humanitarian. Uh, now, unfortunately, when I saw her uh, in, in her, what seemed to be the last weeks of her life, she has multiple uh, cancers and has decided that in her, her closing days, she's going to sound the alarm, which she has done with three very sensational, in both senses of the term, books published in Italy, about the Islamization of Europe. This to her is now the transcendent issue. It matters to her much more than her former left allegiance. It matters to her more than her atheism, because she was the first woman I discovered while talking to her, and I've confirmed it, the first woman to be received by the new Pope, Mr. Ratzinger, as I will always think of him, uh, where she appealed to him, uh, though he knows of her long secular and agnostic and atheist background, uh, to make an alliance with secular Europe. Uh, against the Islamization of the continent and to preserve its culture from what she re re regards as a kind of fifth column. Her book is, in my opinion, somewhat hysterical. I've read the new one, it's not yet quite published, but I've read the previous two as well. Her work, let's say, is distinctly overwrought. Um, she betrays symptoms of a kind that I make me always feel queasy. Too much of an obsession with the birth rate of certain groups is never to me, a good sign. Uh, too much obsession with hygiene, cleanliness, dirt, and so forth, is also sometimes not to be recommended. Um, I don't mind um, elderly Italian ladies using very rich and elaborate obscenities. In fact, I like it. <laughs> and the way that she does it, it's like some um, unbelievable soprano grandmother. I mean, I, the vaffanculo, the, well, Sabine knows this kind of thing. There's a lot of it in her discourse. I like that very much. I also like it on the page. It's much better to see it in person from this amazing, the energetic, dying old crone. 
But, and I don't mind, and I don't mind a, a granny type of sanities about Islam either, or, or against any religion. I, I have nothing but contempt for religious faith. I regard it as one of man's most ignoble creations. Uh, but I don't like it being attached to uh, Muslims. And I think there's all the difference in the world between being rude about Islam and being rude about Muslims themselves. And I think that she may have crossed this line, but there is no question about it that in Italy and beyond, her books have had a gigantic effect in suggesting and quoting some Muslims as saying that their plan for conquest is no longer to take the gates of Vienna by the sword or by the ships of Lepanto, but to do it by demographic fifth column. And there are indeed some hair-raising remarks that have been made uh, by Muslim spokesmen saying that by our, by our, by our large families, we will, we will raise the flag of Islam all over. We will, we will create Arabia. Um, in fact, um, Gilles Capel, a very, uh, this is a slight digression, but it comes to my mind, a very, very distinguished French Islamist, Islamologist, I mean to say, student of, uh, professor of Islamic studies, whose work is very, very careful and measured in that, which I commend to you, tells me that when he goes to speak in North Africa at conferences, they ask him, well, how many Muslims do you think there are in France? And he gives the official figure, which is something like 5 to 6 percent, whatever the, the relevant number would be to go with that percentage. And they laugh at him and say, no, don't be silly, that's just what they tell you. It's much more like 15. We know this because our imams have told us so. And very soon it will be 30. And soon we will no longer mention France as part of the Dar al-Hab, the Muslim definition of the part of the world that is not Muslim, the house of war, the bit that's still to be negotiated. But as the Dar al-Islam itself, France will be part of the homeland. Well, you don't have to be a paranoid, you certainly don't have to be a racist or a bigot to take alarm if that's what people think or want. You can take, if you like, or leave what Ariana Fulacci has said in her books, but these are stores in the wind, and I think her argument is going to be, by every account I can get from the Italian press, uh, the, the centerpiece of the political argument in the country from now on. Um, the case is somewhat different with um, Mr. Fleming Rose, editor of a hitherto unknown newspaper, the Post in, in Copenhagen, who just noticed that in um, Holland there was a little difficulty in getting people to illustrate a children's book being produced with the best of motives to enlighten Danish children about the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. No one, no one wanted to take the risk of being the illustrator in case they were attacked for even hinting at a depiction of the unnameable, not the unknowable, excuse me, the undepictable, the allegedly undepictable. So he, he as you know, put out to tender uh, the idea of a cartoon that would in some way represent the Prophet. Now, I personally think this is a much more serious case because if you and I, ladies and gentlemen, were all to make a resolution today that we would never do or say anything uh, that would upset a Muslim, we would consider that to be a priority, one of the things we always bore in mind. We will not offend the religious susceptibilities of someone whose religion is Islam. Suppose you made that resolution. You just took it for yourself, and as far as you could, you promulgated it to others. Well, how could you know in advance what would be the cause of offense? How would you know? Would you have predicted that a small democracy in Northern Europe with a long record of sending the giant proportion of its budget to help the Palestinians, uh, with an extraordinary record of, of uh, immigration from Muslim lands and assimilation and subsidies for the same, would have its embassies burned down 
and its consulates burned down, and its citizens and nationals attacked and kidnapped in several countries, and its economy seriously and damagingly boycotted because its prime minister refused, because he had no choice, because he has no legal power to do otherwise, to suppress some cartoons in an afternoon newspaper. I don't think you could have seen that that cause of offence was coming, or you could have taken any precaution against it, unless you literally had agreed to submit to a kind of Sharia censorship. And so it seems to me that this is something very serious that began to reverberate in the United States as well, because it is moving from a rule of, let's say, respect or mutuality to a rule more or less based on fear and intimidation. I know a number of the editors who declined to publish those cartoons in the United States. One paper in Canada did, one in France or two, I think one in Sweden, that was about it. All of them had a hard time, but not a terrifying time. No one in America. <coughs> I know many of the editors made that decision. I know the justifications they gave. They said it was they didn't want to be offensive. The same line taken, as a matter of fact, by His Holiness the Pope. I know they're lying. I know that their real reason was fear. I've heard it from their own lips. They didn't want the aggravation, as we would say in England. Um, couldn't face it, weren't prepared to take it. Uh, I heard on the radio in a cab uh, the, the man from National Public, not National Public Radio, uh, PBS, uh, saying how they managed, they thought, to uh, circumvent it. And they, it, was, it was, how did you manage to get them on the screen? He said, well, we were filming a session with the Danish imams who were showing the cartoons to people. And we thought if we filmed them showing it, and there were glimpses of them, that would be all right because it was them showing it. This is, this is what they go through at your local PBS station before they will, in an in immediate epoch, entirely dominated by the pictorial and the imagistic, deign to show you what the essential bones of the story are. And notice something else. The imams are allowed to show these pictures to anyone they like. They can show obscene caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad if they wish. They, in fact, added three of their own that were never in the Copenhagen newspaper. One of them showing the Prophet as a pig, something that no one would dare to do, no one of any taste or, or uh, discernment would do, in order to see if they could raise the wind to get everything to a, a critical mass of, of hatred and rage. So they're allowed to show what we are not allowed to see. This is not a recipe for pluralism or multiculturalism. In fact, it seems to me to be the exploitation of the concepts of pluralism and multiculturalism for use against itself as a form of, if not censorship, of even worse, of prior restraint. And such is the situation in a tiny country in northern Europe, which has done nothing to offend and took no part in the Crusades or the Reconquista of Andalusia. Um, and it's already far past. Well, uh, quickly then. Ayan Hashi Ali, who some of you would have read about, and if you haven't, you can just you can buy her new book. It's called The Caged Virgin. Escaped an arranged marriage in Somalia some years ago. She was not, alas, able to escape circumcision, though she was able to escape infibulation and some of the larger and more obscene routines of the female genital mutilation. Uh, not able to escape that, she decided she would not be married off to a distant relative in Canada and made into a chattel. Moved to Holland, learned Dutch, became a very spectacular public figure, caseworker for the for Muslim women in the ghettos of Rotterdam and Amsterdam. Duly elected to Parliament, uh, decided that uh, the main job she had in life was to warn the Dutch left of what she already knew, 
that militant Islam had come to their country before she had, had preempted her, so to speak, and that they were unaware of the threat that she knew only too well. Uh, she teamed up with a famous filmmaker called Theo van Gogh, distant descendant of the uh, distraught painter. I forget who it was who the critic who once said he, he was such a good critic that he had the ear of van Gogh, doesn't matter. Um, to make a film called Submission, uh, which was duly made, uh, about the plight of Muslim women from circumcision to honor killing, to wife beating, to the failure to educate daughters and so forth. Mr. Van Gogh was uh, shortly afterwards shot down off his bicycle in the streets of Amsterdam. While he lay in the road, was ritually slaughtered by the man who shot him, gutted like a sheep. And a long manifesto was then joined to his chest by a long knife. The manifesto was addressed to Mazayan Ashi Ali. It goes on in lurid details to why and how she's going to hell and for what. She's had to live under police protection ever since. Met her in Washington last week, three or four extremely burly Dutch bodyguards at all times. Uh, her life is safe, but I'm sorry to say that uh, for a long time the Dutch government really wouldn't let her out of custody. It wasn't just protection, it was restriction. She wasn't able to do her job as a member of parliament. When she protested against this and got a little more autonomy, she was also found a place to live in a very well-protected apartment block, probably the best protected apartment block in Holland, in fact. But this has not prevented the Residents Association from urging that she be removed, evicted from her home, and a Dutch court from upholding their claim that they have the right to throw her out. So it's very likely that in a couple of weeks she'll announce her retirement from Dutch Parliament and Dutch politics, and there will have been, I won't call it a bloodless, but a relatively, because it certainly isn't that, but a relatively easy victory for religious bigotry in, a, in the country where Spinoza was able to survive his excommunication, at least, and where many people from France and Spain went to avoid the Inquisition and the horrors of, of Christian and Catholic uh, monarchy, which has been a haven against religious intolerance for a long time. Its, it's people appear to demand and not just its government, that there be a capitulation. Well, these three European fronts, it seems to me, all, all of which I've been engaged with and upon, are, are suggestive and significant and worth our further uh, conversation. Uh, because, and this is what my last example, Mr. Tony Blair, who I also went to see earlier this year, doesn't seem to get. Uh, there is a civil war within Islam. We are not at war with or on terror, as you know. And you've heard the perfectly correct uh, observation that one can't be at war with a, an expression. Um, one, we are at war because there is a civil war within Islam. There are those who want to restore the caliphate by force and to impose sharia. By the way, one doesn't say sharia law, sharia means law. It's enough to say sharia. Um, and there are those who don't want this to happen. And those who are on the fundamentalist side believe they can win can subject their own Muslim society to conquest, partly, at least, by exporting the civil war to the West, uh, which was very dramatically done on the 11th of September 2001, but has been done since in many other places too. In other words, we can't be neutral in this civil war. It's come to involve us. Uh, it's true that Muslims in the past have been drawn into civil wars between Christian countries. That's certainly true. And all this is going to involve a huge cultural study on our part to see where its origins and dynamics, excuse me, and its <coughs> seismic ingredients lie. <coughs> but when I went to talk to Prime Minister Blair 
he believed that he had the solution, um, one that would compose this difference. He said, if we pass laws that say it's not possible to criticize any religion, then no one can be offended. And if we allow Muslims to have separate schools, we will prevent them from complaining that, after all, Protestants and Catholics and Jews also sometimes have separate schools. And I could not get him to see that if these concessions are made, they will not stop there, that the next uh, demand will be not for separate schools for Muslims, but separate schools for Muslim girls, and also separate sporting facilities and library facilities, and maybe in the end a demand for homeschooling of Muslim girls, so we never have to see them at all, and certainly we'll never be able to see their faces, because they will, in a case that the Prime Minister's wife took as a lawyer, be able to plead that the Shador is a decent school uniform for them to wear in an English school, and that rather than have a blasphemy law that only protects Christianity, which is the current state of affairs in Britain, the reason why Salman Rushdie's satanic verses couldn't be prosecuted, uh, the Muslim demand was there should be a blasphemy law, but it should extend to all religions. The proper demand, the secular demand, is there shouldn't be a blasphemy law at all, and that the ancient question, is nothing sacred, has always had an ancient answer, no, nothing is, um, and that many good people laid their lives on this proposition from Spinoza, onwards in order to create the kind of country, and I'm looping back to my beginning now, that Mr. Jefferson, with his Virginia Statute on Religious Freedom, which became our First Amendment, hoped to see that if we value these things at all and care for them at all, uh, we better look to the inheritance that came to us so easily because we're going to have to be defending it for the rest of our lives and on this soil as well as that of Europe. And the urgency of that, I think, uh, quite transcends any tactical, local, particular, regional, tribal or strategic differences between uh, North America and the European Union. So, uh, thank you for being my prisoners. I'm now quite willing to be your hostage. And I'll turn the questions over to you, sir. Thank you. Thank, thank you, ladies. You so much. Thank you for enduring our sound system. You know, the audience was very polite. Only the sound system was... Well, how bad was that? Was it hell for you? <laughs> it was fine for me. So those are okay. So the floor is open. Questions, remarks, please. Do you think the French that have the right idea in, in drawing the line in the sand, so to speak, and banning the headscarves of Muslim girls, do you think that it's probably a good idea? Because all along, I figured they were overreacting, but then... In view of what you're saying, is that possibly the, the correct direction to go to not let it begin whatsoever, or what's your point on that? Mr. Chirac, to me, as well as being a pimp and a fraud and a, <laughs> and a man who had to run for re-election in order to preserve his immunity from very serious charges of corruption which still stand against him, is a pseudo-Republican, is a pseudo-laïciste, as the French say. Uh, France is, in effect, a Catholic country. Uh, you are obliged, in some ways, to pay keep the French church going. The French government reserves the right to appoint bishops, as it now claims the right to appoint imams. Um, they forgot to include the Sikhs, of whom there are quite a number in the headgear ban. They protested because the Sikh uniform or the headgear has been determined in many countries to be first as good as a crash helmet for motorbike purposes, <laughs> and second as good as a, as a steel helmet for military ones. Uh, at least they should have known this argument had come before. They forgot it. Completely. And so, and it was said that uh, crosses and stars of David should not be worn either if they were too big. 
What Muslim is going to buy that? It's the worst of both worlds. It's a capitulation, first, to the, to the fusion of church and state, and secondly, it's quite obviously designed to uh, have its effect principally on, on Muslims. Um, and the French government can, as I say, appoint and does appoint imams and deports them sometimes from France if it doesn't like them. Let's understand. This is the legacy of uh, the Robespierrean nationalization of religion, which is the absolute reverse of the American uh, promise, which is that a secular state guarantees freedom for all religions, and only a secular state can do that. Only a state that is indifferent to religion can protect all of them, which is the origin of Mr. Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists, mentioning the wall of separation. Who do you think the Danbury Baptists wanted to be protected against at the time? You all know this, I trust. No. Uh, the, against the Danbury Congregationalists, who were persecuting them and giving them a hard time. They wrote to the president saying, why? They said, no, don't you worry. In this country, there will never be any privilege of any, of any sect. It's the, we're, the only, we're the only country that does it, and we're the only one that doesn't value it. Other people wish they had what we got and would value it if they did. Please, yes, yes um, I know from some of your writing that your defense of the war in Iraq is partly about completely different issues related to the uh, Saddam Hussein's regime, etc. But there's tremendous confusion about the relationship between that war and the war against militant Islam. Yes. Uh, and I just wanted to invite you to talk about that relationship. Well, it's true that the, the case against Saddam Hussein, um, the case for replacing his regime, can be made without reference to religion at all. And when the... Um, when the Senate passed the Iraq Liberation Act in 1998, when George Bush was governor of Texas, unanimously, I might add, saying that uh, it shall be the policy of the United States to change the government of Iran, it was talking of it as a, essentially a secular fascist regime that had committed genocide, uh, broken the non-proliferation treaty, uh, committed aggression against other countries, and in all the other ways that you can call your own sovereignty into question at the UN, done so repeatedly and threatened to do so again. Perfectly solid case. I've never heard anyone argue against it properly anyway. I've heard some you know, noises off here and there. I've never heard that case challenged. Had to go. Um, it became more urgent after 2001 because there was very good evidence, especially since the war that he had started with Iran, that Saddam Hussein's regime was becoming a jihadist one as well, a Sunni jihadist regime. Uh, the whole of Baghdad, radio and TV, was given over entirely to religious propaganda. Uh, religious instruction was beginning in the party and in the army. Saddam would say that built the largest mosque in the world in his own name with a Quran written, well, it, certainly in blood. He said it was his. It was so much blood to go around in Iraq. It could have been someone else's, but he said it was a Quran in his own blood. Never photographed except in religious robes and increasingly inviting uh, jihadist forces from mainly from Sudan, but also elsewhere from Afghanistan into Iraq, um, and promising to support them, as he did the Islamic Jihad forces in, um, among the Palestinians. He, he was the man who paid for the suicide bombers and boasted of it. And we can prove, in fact, he did, he did pay that money, partly in order to undermine the secular PLO. Um, and figures from the bin Laden organization were showing up more and more and more. I can show you the papers, meetings with his officials in Iraq and outside, notably Mr. Zakawi. So it became a, an urgent question that there shouldn't be another state, as Afghanistan had been and Sudan had been, Iraq's other ally, that was, would be an official host to jihadist terrorism. 
But the picture is complicated, as all re revolutionary struggles I've ever been involved with uh, are, um, by the fact that many of those who wanted to get rid of Saddam Hussein were themselves religious fundamentalists, particularly among the Shia. So there's a war within the war, within the anti-Saddam camp. There are those who would like an Islamic Republic, and there are those who would never accept it. And so this has very much complicated the picture and reminded us of what a, an extraordinarily uh, tenuous state Iraq is to begin with. Question two, I think. I just wanted to say, I saw that 9-11 um, date associated with uh, the siege of Vienna and the, you know, the World Trade Center for many, many, several years ago on the internet. And there were like a bunch of Polish sites, you know, it would be Polish, yeah. Yeah, of course, you're not going to forget that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe they were trying yeah. to when did you print it, It's it? just a speculation. Hilla Belloc. When did you print it? When did you publish I printed The Nation, I think, the, something like the end of, of 2001 or early 2002. I was, as far as I know, I have a Catholic fanatic friend, which is actually not a Pole, um, who gave me a wonderful book, which you all have, by the way. Um, by Hilaire Belloc, Chesterton's great ally in Catholic propagandism. Um, it's called The Great Heresies. No home, no devout home should be without it. And one of, it has a long discussion about the moment of Vienna, and um, he makes nothing of it. He just says that September the 11th should be remembered as, as a great day in the struggle for civilization. For him, it had been established as the day. So I was drawing partly on Belloc and partly on my belief that numinous dates and dreams and coincidences and prophecies that sort of matter a lot to this lot, which they certainly, excuse me, seem to do, and that they should just pick a date at random when they had so much time on their hands seemed odd to me. But then why not say? Why didn't they say so? Another question. Um, you know, if you look at... Let's, let's, let's well, I don't mind, I don't mind. Could we turn sure. second round, please, yeah. Uh, what do you see as being the implications in this gloomy scenario for Europe uh, if uh, Turkey joins the European Union? Well, I can preach that round or I can preach it flat because it, the, that, the, Turkey is the only uh, Muslim country of any size ever to have crossed the bridge over from Islamism uh, to a secular state. And it, apparently nothing will drag it back over again. I mean, it, I'm sure the majority of people in Turkey in some way consider themselves to be Muslim, but the attachment of people to the secular form of the state to having everything from unveiled women uh, to a uh, language now written in a, in a Latin instead of an Arabic script and so forth. Uh, plus, I think a certain feeling of superiority to Arabs probably shouldn't be completely left out of the picture. Many other things. Uh, it seems important to me. I mean, it it's, is an extraordinary thing. Uh, Mustafa Kemal uh, managed to do this. He, he was certainly an atheist, not a secularist. And it seems died of Rocky, among other things. Um, but remember, was only able to do it because he had, as a general, defeated two Christian empires. Uh, the, the British one first, the Gallipoli, and then the, then the Greek, the Byzantine, if you like, um, in 1921, clearing them all out of Asia Minor. So having done that, there was nothing he could not do. And any mullah who got in his way could simply be, was, executed. But that's the price for it. You can't, there will be no other secularization along that line, I don't think. And this is a longer question than, longer answer than you were looking for, but 
a lot of the malformations of Western policy, especially Western think tank policy since then, and statecraft, have been the search for another editor, another secularizing dictator. They thought they'd found him with the Shah. They thought they'd found him with Nasser. They thought they'd found him with Saddam Hussein for a long, long time. Another editor. No, because he doesn't meet the conditions. He didn't come to power having defeated another religious imperialism. He didn't have that credit. So we won't get that again. Now, as to whether there should be in Europe or not, the, here's how I would phrase it. You can say to the Turks, frankly, chaps, Europe ends at the Bosphorus, and most of your country's on the wrong bloody side of it. You, you're perfect, you will understand what we're saying here. And, you know, if we had you in, our borders would be on Iraq, instead of the Bosphorus, and Syria. Um, you can say that, and I think they'd understand. Or you can say, welcome, we'd like to prove that we're not just a Christian club. What you cannot do is say, just do one more little thing. One more, and we'll, one more year's negotiation, we will say yes. That risks the worst of both worlds, and that's the current statecraft. Quite a lot of genius involved, I think, in managing to screw it up that badly, <laughs> to, to, insult, to insult the most secular, the most Europeanized Turk, and make him remember that he's being patronized and condescended to and insulted. That's appalling. Um, and that's another triumph of um, Chiracian statecraft, by the way. Yes, Keith. Uh, you talked about the civil war in Islam. Um, there's a civil war in America, and if you criticize or insult the icons of essentially the religion of the losing side of that civil war, um, you will get in the 21st century the usual death threats, but in this case, unlike in, in the Danish case, the state will intervene, and the state will intervene on the side of the defenders of the Confederacy. Uh, so what do you, has happened in the case in, uh, in Tennessee in 2002, well, from 2002 to 2005? Uh, so what do you make of this kind of situation? I'm wondering if I should ask you to expound a bit. I mean... Um... Yeah, so, and specifically, um, uh, in Tennessee, there are statues honoring Nathan Bedford Forrest, who's commonly regarded as the founder of the Ku Klux Klan, who's like the first grand wizard or something yes. like that, or Hobgoblin, whatever they call themselves. Um, and, uh, but if you, uh, as someone did, uh, uh, publicly criticize that state funds be used to uh, erect such statues, uh, people who would normally be in a cell um, next to uh, John Walker Lind or, or someone else, um, then you'll not only get death threats, but the established institutions will take up the side of the Confederate cause, including the courts. Um, and uh, so they'll take up the side of the people who are willing to threat, uh, threaten violence um, uh, in the 21st century. Well, there's a very good book by a friend of mine called Professor James Lowen. Uh, whose book, uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, you may know some of you. It's a great book. It's written as a, a successor book called Lies Across America, which is a study of uh, crossroads markers, uh, statues, battlefield obelisks, and similar things of this kind. Many of them, quite alarmingly, uh, among other things, falsified. I mean, not, not just the glamorization of people who were at one point slaveholders or would, were guilty of what would even then have been thought of as war crimes. For example, the Confederate Army openly said in advance that it would shoot its prisoners if they were uh, black Union soldiers taken in arms, which would be a war crime, which was a war crime even then. 
but also, please misrepresent and falsify the facts. This is a discussion that goes on all across the country all the time from state to state. And a lot of these um, markers, by the way, are north of the Mason Dixon line. But I must say, I don't think it rises to the level of civil war. And if you say that getting a death threat is a serious thing, you can listen to my voicemail any time. <laughs> uh, you don't have to do much to get a death threat, but I think it's, it's, it's a bad thing on the whole. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have mentioned it if you hadn't. I mean, I wish it had not been Robert Kennedy who said that those who uh, write don't shoot and those who shoot don't write, uh, because somehow it seems like the wrong example to quote, but I think in, in general, it's true that people who do that have done the worst that they probably know how to do, and that they're contemptible. But they don't have to because they control the mechanism of the state and the union No, I would actually not say that that was true. I mean, it's... It was the case in this. It is. I don't think that people in Tennessee will, will take down the statutes of Forrester. You're quite right in saying was the founder of the Klan. I don't, don't, don't think that they will. The, generally speaking, the argument about whether the Confederate flag can fly over a state capital has been or is being won. But if you look at today's, this week's New Republic, I recommend it to you. There's a very long and very interesting article about George Allen, governor of Virginia, who is considered by some as a possible Republican moderate nominee and about his very long past of displaying and advocating Confederate symbols. And I agree with you that because of the failures of Reconstruction, this, this war is not in that sense over. But I, wouldn't, I don't think it rises to the level of a civil war of the kind that the Muslim world is under, undergoing. Please. Best I can do. Yes. And yet one, which I think you would agree, which is committed to democracy. This opens up the possibility of an Islamist political party engaging in a free and fair election, not Hamas, perhaps not Hezbollah. Uh, we have some frightening examples uh, of parties in the Islamist category that are elected to power that retain an interest in violence. But that need not be the case. And what bothers me about the extreme secularist position, namely, for example, the only kind of government that can guarantee freedom is a secularist one, is that you thereby alienate one side in the internal civil war within Islam that you also noted, namely the people who are personally pious, but in no way fanatic, and quite democratic mm -hmm. in political values. So don't you see a kind of tension here between your ideal and the reality on the ground, and what the United States, for example, might pragmatically do to make the world a better place? Well, sure, because, I mean, in uh, in Iraq, where there were no political parties until recently, and where it was death to discuss having one, since political parties were allowed, at least in the Shia-dominated and some of the Sunni-dominated neighborhoods, uh, political parties are identified with different forms of the confessional. Uh, would I say that's better than no parties at all? Yes, I would. I would. I think it's a risk you have to take. Um, would I vote for Muqtad Asada? No. Do I think he should have been arrested for his attempt to murder a senior Ayatollah in a mosque in Kabbalah, yes, I think he should have been arrested and charged. Do I think that they don't dare? Yeah, I do think they don't dare. Am I glad his people are mainly out of the Mahdi army and into politics? 
ah, I like to have them where I can see them, yes. So I'll take a more extreme case than you do. In the case of the Justice Party in Turkey, Mr. Erdogan made a very distressing statement at one point where he said that for us, democracy is like a train. You take it to where you want to go, and then you get off. I wish he hadn't said that. I'm not going to forget that he said it, but I think there's every possibility that in Turkey uh, he could peacefully leave power if he lost an election. But that's, I don't know if that would be true if it weren't for the durability of Kemalist institutions in Turkey, notably the armed forces, who would make certain of it. And of course, um, now, uh, the European Union, and the European Union won't admit to membership any country that doesn't have regular parliamentary elections. But w who knows what it would be like without these guarantees? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you Well, it is a civil war, uh, but there are civil wars within it. I mean, the, the, the one I identify is between those who want the restoration of the caliphate, which is Bin Laden's demand, particularly. In other words, he can't really claim to be an anti-imperialist. He's, he's not just in favor of a new empire, but he's nostalgic for an old one. And that this will be governed, he says, by, by the Taliban version of Sharia. And it clearly wouldn't stop there. This would be a step towards the evangelization of the whole world for Islam. And those who don't want it, which would include an enormous number of Muslims who, even if they thought it was desirable to go back to that century, know that it's not possible. But within that, there are many more. I mean, in Pakistan and Iraq now, there's more or less open violence between Shia and Sunni, which is a, always a latent war within, this, within the House of Islam. Um, the versions of Islam that are considered extremely heretical, such as the Al-Mahdi uh, version, also has quite a lot of followers in Pakistan. It can be death to profess that, because it, it suggests there may have been another revelation after that of the Prophet, which was final, and so forth. Um, so the, one of the reasons, in fact, why jihads have always failed, as, as this one will, is because they fall to fighting among themselves. First, as to who is the real Prophet, who is the real Imam, the leader, the Sheikh. And second, on doctrinal questions. This is already happening inside Al-Qaeda, as anyone can see. Um, but the, the, essential, the essential war is the one I wanted to identify as the one that I began to identify. And it's, it now, this argument goes on now in European society already. In other words, the people who have been telling us for a long time, watch out for the other side in this war watch out for the jihadists, 
are people like Salman Rushdie and Hanif Qureshi and Ayan Hashi Ali and many others, themselves of Muslim origin and background, who know very well what this is like. And you find they're talking to liberals who've lost the idea of being able to recognize an enemy, let alone name one and fight one, who, who dissolve everything into relativism. Uh, so that's the, that's the form that the war takes in our consciences. They say, no, 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 surely this can't be true. And, you can, and I can demonstrate it to you, I think. Um, the Greeks used to be so afraid of the Furies so that they wouldn't even mention them. It's an old superstition, almost every culture has it. You don't, don't say the devil, don't say Voldemort would be the, the new version. Don't even say it. So they would call them the Eumenides, the, the kindly ones, in the hope that that would... You know. Well, now people say, yes, well, what we want is lots more moderate Muslims. Now, who, who do you know among your Muslim acquaintances who wants to be known as Mr. Moderate? I mean, what, what do we take these people for? It's the most, I mean, it's, it's the most patronizing thing you could want anyone to have. No, he's, it's like saying he's our Muslim. You might as well just come out right out and say, and he's, let's have a, there are some people in Denmark, they call themselves the democratic Islamic groups, for example, they do that. Or Muslims for pluralism it might be that too. Or Muslims against fascism would be great. But the insistent demand by our sort of think tank and municipal and political authorities for let's find the moderates here is a sure sign that they are in a sense looking for a way to capitulate. I have Dan there and a few more. I'll try to get all of you. Yeah. Getting back to your starting point with the Barbary Wars, um, it seems like there's a slightly worrisome parallel between that first military engagement and the, the current ones, namely from the, the legal perspective. And that was a war against piracy. Mm. And piracy in the law of nations, pirates were those that had no rights and forfeited all rights because they didn't belong to a recognized nation. And it seems like that same logic has reappeared in the way that we treat prisoners in the uh, contemporary or namely <coughs> denying them uh, the legal category of, of war prisoners. So if, if, this, uh, um, if we don't need to sort of rethink the rules of engagement here along non-18th century lines as well, um, there's a sort of somewhat dangerous continuation of, of natural right thinking that um, has gone from Jefferson well, you could push it a bit further than that if you liked. I mean, Jefferson decided not to tell Congress that he was going to send the fleet. And he didn't tell them until the fleet was so far out to sea that it couldn't be recalled. Uh, and he wasn't to know that it would be the great success it was, by the way, it was. But he wasn't also attempting to change the regime in these states. He was attempting to change their policy. It was behavior modification at gunpoint. And it did basically work. They, they, they dropped it. They eventually signed an agreement that they wouldn't do it anymore. And then, as you know, a few decades later, were invaded and taken over by France and Italy and Spain. These are the Brits. That wasn't the United States' fault, then. Um, the question of piracy, as you put it, doesn't come up in this instance, because we, this was slaveholding kidnapping, ransoming, um, and so on, as well as piracy. They were outside the law in so many other ways. Um, and there was no demand in any case that any of them be given up to justice. They were just told they'd be, they'd be bombarded until they stopped. Um, 
but then there would have been no way for any of them to come across the United States and roll kegs of gunpowder into the halls of Congress either. Well, they, they could have done, but they didn't think about it, and it would have been very difficult for them. Whereas we now face a completely transformed situation uh, where there isn't the distinction between over there and over here has been abolished, though you wouldn't know it. People still think, you know, that, that a soldier in Iraq is in more danger uh, than a civilian in New York. When it's obvious that the contrary is the case. But every time I have an argument with the, the riffraff calling itself the anti-war movement, there will always be at least someone who says, if this is the way I feel, why don't I or my son go there? I say, I've been there several times. And I was worried for my wife in Washington and my daughter in Washington, much more than I was, as, as I should be. Because if I'm in a uniform and carrying a gun, or if I'm with people who are in Iraq, I have a chance. But they don't have a single chance now. And I think our attitude to the people who want to kill them you know, on our soil um, has to be, however it's formed, has to be at least informed by that thought. Please, yeah. Um, I was seeing if coat trading would bring me anything. Sorry? I was wondering if I'd catch a minnow by doing it. <laughs> of course he's not a prophet. I mean, he's an epileptic plagiarist. It's a man who went into spasm to order and summoned the same angel as he was jealous of the Christians for having. It's a very simple story. You only have to read the Quran and the Hadith. It's, it's a boring plagiarism of the worst bits of Judaism and Christianity. Unoriginal ripoff by someone who's clearly mentally ill and who was fed up being teased by Jews and Christians in the, in the peninsula who said, ah, God doesn't seem to have had a revelation for Arabs. Well, when that, if that teasing went on for long, it was pretty obvious some Arab would have a revelation. Only a matter of time. Joseph Smith, who fabricated a whole religion out of whole cloth in upstate New York, which has now made nominate one of our candidates, Mr. Romney, wanted to be known as the Muhammad of America. His model for plagiarism was, was Muhammad, and rightly so. Christianity is a plagiarism of Judaism. Judaism is a plagiarism of various death cults that preceded it, um, and various non-events. Um, there's nothing to study in this at all. It's the, it, is, it is exactly what you would expect a very poorly evolved mammal to come up with, <laughs> which is what we are. It's, it's, it's about, it's made in our own image. That's what you get. Evil, evil, evil fairy tales. And unoriginally recycled. No, prophecy, nothing to do with it. Please. Um, thank you. Um, well, you lead me to what I was going to ask you in a way. Um, I share with you some of your apparent contempt for religion in general, and, and that's, that's something that, that I feel. But, but what we're talking about here is trying to uh, accomplish something, trying to understand the causes of uh, the situation we're in right now internationally. It's interesting that you're, in your discussion, you completely um, avoided the topic of strategic value in the, in the Middle East and uh, to our economy and the oil and so on, and how that plays a role in all of this. Um, and you know, I'm wondering how do you how do you reconcile your placing at center stage this religious and cultural war 
uh, with these facts that are so pertinent to the conduct of international affairs. Uh, you know, I, I've always had a personal feeling that people in power like to pay lip service to these religious, religious issues when it serves their purposes, but underneath are motives that are more direct, more palpable. Right. I don't know how many of you have studied the um, paper by P Professors Mearsheimer and Walt recently about the Israeli lobby. It's an interesting product of the realist school, so-called, because that contains various, what I would regard as turgid boilerplate, repetitive criticisms of Israeli policy and of our uh, indulgence of it, many of which I could have made, some of which I have made myself. It also wants to argue that the United States is, is um, undermining its own interest by doing this. It's rather fascinating. These guys think they're smarter than the American imperialists. If they were running the empire, these guys wouldn't be being fooled by the Jews. They'd be making big business with the Saudis instead and not letting Arabs get upset about Zionism. Well, it's, a, it's an extraordinary uh, piece of cynicism, I would say, and combined with an extraordinary naivete. It doesn't deserve to be called realistic at all. But, and I don't presume, frankly, to advise uh, the oil companies or the um, defense contractors on this kind of thing. Uh, but I will tell you that uh, it is, in my lifetime in Washington, which is now a quarter of a century, the most amazing thing I have ever seen is to see the, the oil-bearing wing of the Republican Party, particularly identified with Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney, uh, change its mind completely, having run against Al Gore, against nation-building, against humanitarian intervention, against this kind of operation, change its mind completely and go to war with the status quo, completely against the advice of Saudi Arabia, of all the oil lobby, and all the uh, defense contractors, and uh, not, as far as I can see, with any advice from Israel to do so either. So as well as making Mirsan and Walt look like the mediocre uh, second raters that they are, I think this should caution anyone who says that our interests in the region are driven by any particular uh, deposit or interest because it doesn't seem plausible. I mean, I've never seen the big wheel move the small one, or the, or the reverse, if you wish. Saudi Arabia did not want the United States to remove the Taliban. That's, I hope, common knowledge. Okay. Saudi Arabia was one of the patrons of the Taliban. It was one of the three countries in the world that recognized it. Not, did not want the United States to use force to. Mr. Bush, alleged by many to be a tool of the Saudi royal family, got rid of the Taliban. Saudi Arabians, who known to have big influence in Texas and elsewhere, certainly have much too much influence in Washington, in my opinion, in particular the recent, their recent envoy, Prince Bandar, I'm glad to see the back of, said, we don't want you invading Iraq either. We want a buffer state between us and the Shia. We don't want a democracy on the border, especially not a Shia one. You, in fact, you can't use our, your bases in Saudi Arabia if you want to do this. You have to move them to Ghana. Well, is this the Saudi tail wagging the bush dog? I don't think so. How do you account for this kind of thing? Doesn't seem to me to fit at all. But if you can just pronounce the words blood and oil, people will applaud. Often intelligent, apparently seemingly intelligent people will give you applause for your moral courage and saying so. I don't get it, and I've studied this a lot more than a lot of people have. Please, in the back. Yeah. Um, in an article that you published in the Sunday Times uh, a little over a week ago, 
If it's been tearing up blogs on both sides of the Atlantic, I'm, I'm pleased to hear it. This is a very modest manifesto, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who don't know about it, produced by a group of British old leftists, basically. Um, not many of them, I think, would be known to you by name unless you are students of the work of Rosa Luxemburg, as I am, about whom Norman Geras, who's the actual writer of the manifesto, wrote a very interesting book. Um, and this is a group on the left who take the view that though they don't have a unified position on the rightness of the war to remove Saddam Hussein, they do take the view that the job of the left is, is to support the democratic and secular uh, forces in Iraq, including the Kurds, the feminists, the labor unions, and so forth, against the Ba'athist uh, fighters and the theocratic fighters. It's something that I would say, when I was asked to sign it, I said, well, if I do, it will be the most conservative statement I've ever signed, the most obvious, most obvious statement I've ever made. However, in the present circumstances, it is a controversial position to say that you prefer the Iraqis who vote to the Iraqis who blow up mosques and hospitals and behead hostages. If you say the latter, you could be accused of being a tool of George Bush. And there are people who are watching it happen as if they were neutral, as if it didn't matter to them, or didn't involve them at all, and who, if it goes the other way, will say, well, that's bad for the Republican Party. For shame. So there's a for shame tinge in what our manifesto says. At this point, I'd like to interject a question. I'll take my right as introducer. From, from your view of both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, is there a European take on terrorism, Islamist, jihadism, and so on? Is there something we could call a European voice? Or do we have a wire that we have to cope with? Well, there are people who take this view in America as well. But I would say it was more—it was more widely institutionally believed in Europe. First, that an accommodation with Islamism is both necessary and desirable because it, it does now form a social and political bloc within Europe itself, and of course is much more contiguous because of Turkey and other things, uh, to, to the European... That's the difference I was trying to sketch earlier between the days of Lepanto and Vienna and so on now, uh, that it's now the Europeans who feel, let's forget all the long struggle against Islam. And so the United States is having to relearn it. Um, and the, the, the expression that this policy, or this, let's call it a mentality, rather, takes, I think, is the view that if only there was a Palestinian state, would be a great deal more peace and a great deal more understanding and a great deal more mutual respect between Europe and the West, whatever you want to call it, and Islam. And I used to have some sympathy with that view. I've come to think it's naive. Um, Arafat's regime in Gaza, rac racketeering, bucket shop, banana republic that it was, was sort of a point in the budget of the European Union. It was essentially paid for by Austria, Sweden, France, it was our contribution to the Middle East. No one knows where any of the money went. I have a rough idea, so do you. Um, and maybe that, I think that was worth trying, by the way. But the, the insistent belief is that 
if only uh, we could be bigger friends of a smaller Israel and there'd be a Palestinian state, then this, all this nonsense would stop. I, now, I think it's so evident from the statements and the stratagems of the jihadists that that is not the case. If there ever is a Palestinian state, among other things, well, there will be a civil war within it, as there are signs of one already, between those who think it should become part of a larger Islamic empire and those who do not, those who think it should be run by Islamic law and those who think it should not. Mr. Bin Laden does not favor a Palestinian state because he thinks Palestine is lost land that belongs to the caliphate, all of it. Be, and certainly there can be no Israel. In fact, the only thing I agree with Bin Laden about is his refusal to call Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia. Saudi people have enough, well, people of that region, I should say, have enough to put up with without being called after the name of their royal family. Um, he calls it the land of the two mosques, fine. What he means is it's unredeemed land for the caliphate. He also won't call Iraq Iraq, he calls it the land of the two rivers. It's a nicer name. But uh, if you think that he bleeds for the sufferings of the Palestinians and would stop, if these sufferings are assuaged, I think you may be fooling yourself. It's, he wants to shore up the Sudanese government in Darfur uh, against any UN peacekeepers. His most recent statement is that any Western peacekeepers who come to alleviate that genocide should be shot. He, want, he believes that East Timor should be given back to Indonesia, and his people blew up the United Nations great hero, um, Sergio de Melio, in Baghdad, who had overseen that transition uh, for that reason. We put an end to the life of the man who dared to separate East Timor from the Muslim land in Indonesia. Uh, it is an, an illusion to believe that uh, Mr. Bin Laden is in some way ventriloquizing the cries of the poor and the oppressed. It's just false. People who believe it are foolish and trying to fool others. Questions here and one over there. The Related to what you said about the anti war riffraff and a couple of things, why is there such a shortage of well articulated secularism in this country or in the world? Well, partly because of the victory of secularism, strangely enough. I mean, because it's just what de Tocqueville noticed. Religion flourishes enormously in a country where it's not supported by the state where people regard their church as the expression of their own voluntary and community effort, their own personal uh, gift or, or, or labor, if you wish. They'll, take, they'll be very devout and very loving towards it in a way that people who are forced to pay tithes to the government to support a church will not. So most people in America identify very often a good bit of their family and sometimes their political and social and community life with their church. Um, you can find it everywhere. It's very true of black America, especially in the South, because of survival. So it used to be much more true than it now is of the Jewish population, which is the most secular in the country, by far. Uh, but it used to be very religious, but it was a means of identity. So people like myself who think that religion is evil and dangerous always have a hard time, uh, because people, people's personal experience of religion very often is uh, as something practically secular charitable, educational, humanitarians, with a vague spiritual tinge that they couldn't really identify. Mr. Jefferson believed that most people then alive in America would die as Unitarians. <laughs> I don't really 
It's not clear to me what Unitarians believe. But I'm told that they believe it's one God at most. <laughs> um, and certainly Jefferson's Bible, the one, the edited down version that he produced that cuts out all the mythological nonsense from the New Testament, is something that I know that they study. Well, a lot of, it seems to me that a huge number of people in America, whatever their confessions are, or allegiances are, are in fact Unitarian. They have a vaguely spiritual sense and a vague feeling of responsibility to others that is expressed often by a church going or other religions. That's what it is. And it doesn't give you enough to argue with. That's what annoys me. You say to someone, you said you were Catholic. Yes, absolutely. My family have been Catholic generations. So you believe that the tenth virgin birth that I know of in human mythology, after Danai and Buddha, the tenth one that I can name, gave birth to Jesus of Nazareth. You think that? I didn't say I believe that. So I thought you had to. No, no, you see. Don't like this a la carte stuff. I like to know where I am. <laughs> Two more questions. One here and one there. Yeah, please. These cars don't run. Uh, yeah. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the Bruin crisis. With Iran. In particular, what would you think the Islamic Well, Iran, well, okay, to answer your question in reverse order, what do Islamic fundamentalists think about it? Most Arab, most, excuse me, most Islamic fundamentalists are Sunni Arabs. Bin Ladenism, Wahhabism, Salafism, whatever we agree to call it, this is essentially a Sunni Arab movement. They do not like the Shia at all. They, when, the, when the Taliban was in charge of Afghanistan, it made a very serious effort to uh, eliminate the Shia by mass murder, in particular the ethnic minority, the Hazara, that practiced that religion. Indeed, Iran was, going to, Iran was going to invade Afghanistan itself to get rid of the Taliban if Mr. Clinton hadn't stopped them from doing so. So no, don't forget that. Then there are Arab states, especially in the Gulf area, especially the smaller ones. Some of them Muslim, some of them were Hadi, like Gata. Don't at all fancy the idea of a Shia uh, nuclear capacity. And have made this very plain to American and European negotiators that they don't want this at all. So for all that, to, I think many people seeing Ahmadinejad talking about weaponry and saying the name of God, they think, oh, there goes Islamic fundamentalism again. They, they overlook my insistence on this civil war concept, this internecine struggle. Um, it, it seems to me that the, though it's been left like everything else till it's far too late, uh, as Iraq, been let, the situation was left to rot until there were almost no good choices that I'll, I'll stake my little reputation on this, if you like. The, the Iranians, Ahmadinejad is, is a mad, uncultured, unwashed taxi driver, obviously. But he also doesn't have any power. As has just yesterday been proved, you saw his populist move to uh, allow women to go to football matches, be in the same stadium. Well, as you probably know, they're not allowed to do that in Iran. So he thought it might be popular if he let them go, do a concession. So it was announced, okay, women can go to the same football match as a guy. Big deal, but... Well, yesterday, the supreme religious leader, I told Khamenei, said, no, no, the president can't say that. They can't go. Of course you can't have chicks at football matches in Iran. Must be crazy. So it's a reminder of who's boss. Quite a timely one, too. He is a... So it doesn't matter that he's a scrofulous madman. He's not mad in the clinical way that Saddam Hussein is mad. If Saddam Hussein had got a bomb, he would have used it the same day. On Iran, as a matter of not on Islam. That's what he wanted it for. The Iranians wanted their bomb to use it on Iraq. 
we've now done them a huge favor. We've disarmed Iraq. Grizzle all you like about not finding enough WMD. I have an argument, so the cows come home about that if you like. We can now certify Iraq as disarmed. We've done the Iranians a huge favor. The man who wanted to blow them up and poison their water is gone. He's not coming back. What they want is to, is as a, is to be taken seriously. They, they believe also that it will give them immunity from the regime change. And I think they're wrong about that because I think their own people will eventually do the job. So would you support a war? No, I mean, I don't think you can, there's no, since Iran, Iran is not planning to invade any of its neighbors, as Iraq always was. Basically, I Saddam had to. Iran has not committed genocide in its, in its own borders as Iraq had done. It has fouled around, fucked around with the non-proliferation treaty. And in a, in a much more obvious way, in fact, in some ways than Iraq did. Um, and it's careful about the international gangsters that it supports. It has a, a sort of standoff relationship with some of them, but it's not a... We, we know the names of senior Iranians who are wanted in Europe for sending death squads there, for example. We could arrest them any time, and we should. It isn't a regime like... It isn't a completely totalitarian, fascist volatile, nightmare regime like the Iraqi Bar So the alternative policy is to attempt a kind of Nixon in China diplomacy with these guys, knowing that as in the case of China, there is a civil society imprisoned within this Islamic state. And that down the road, one might be dealing with a different generation. And in the meantime, they've no interest in using their weapons for a period of time. Because it would be as it were, literally the last thing they do. <laughs> so, I could preach this round or preach it flat either, but I, I don't, I think that the, one should certainly try and exhaust all those latter possibilities, including full restoration of diplomatic relations and so forth, and negotiations on opening the borders and free trade. Iran is going bankrupt with all this nonsense. We run into the ground by the moonlight. Um, if we, before it moves to the stage where we have to say, look, we, we cannot take the risk of, you, of people like you being in charge of nuclear weapons. Which would, I mean, if I was president, I would be very hesitant to leave office saying, well, I decided it was okay to let them have them. You know, I might be cursed by history forever for saying that. I'll put it like this. If you may have noticed the Shia rituals and how Catholic they are, 12 imams, one of them coming back one day, perhaps soon. Processions of terrible flagellation and moaning and guilt, tearing your face and so on, beating yourself up. Why weren't you there when they killed him? Why? why? Just like some awful holy week in, in Spain. And borrowed from, you know. As everything is plagiarized there too. They sent people to Rome years ago to study how to put on a proper parade and really get people mobilized. <laughs> yes. And they have the same terror of menstrual blood and the same terror of homosexuality, the same terror, all this. It's the same, it's exactly the same garbage, basically. So look at it like this. The Inquisition is getting hold of a bomb. See if that cheers you up. <laughs> but it's okay, it's faith-based. <laughs> so relax. Final question, I think. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I saw you in a, in a, in a show uh, this past uh, weekend where a comparison that was C-SPAN, I think, with an English author. I don't remember right now his name. Oh, Professor Grayling. Right. Yes. And 
And there was a comparison made between 9-11 and the fire bombings of Dresden, Hamburg, yes. Tokyo. Now, you seem to have come up with a, right, a nice moral principle. As long as we are Democrats, we can firebomb hundreds of thousands of people, 80,000 in one night in Tokyo. However, Ben Laden, if he uh, firebombs two towers with 3,000 people dying, he commits the most horrible crime in the whole universe. And I think that is, a, as I said, a very interesting moral principle that you bring. What makes you think that that's my principle? Well, what, I mean, say, what allows you to ask such a stupid question? <laughs> Thank you very much. That's all right. You You're bloody rude to me. This is what happens. You excuse LeMay and McNamara for killing 80,000 people in one night, the 10th of March of 19. What makes you identify me with Robert McNamara, sir? That's what, what gives you the right to identify with me with Robert McNamara, sir? Answer the damn question. Or I give it up. I don't identify, but you excuse. You excuse. Where? You did in this. When? You said you <laughs> cannot compare. You listened as well then as you did uh, this evening then. You I'm did. sorry, this is a waste of my time. It's an insult. Of course I've not identified with these people. I, I devoted many years of my life to a, a book that exposes Henry Kissinger for war crimes. I've written innumerable denunciations and appeared on innumerable panels about the, the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's not my problem if you can't listen to what I say or read what I have to say. It's a very poor ending, I'm sorry, but it's very rude of you, and I resent it, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but... And when I'm resentful, I'm often not at my best. <laughs> but since we were coming to an end anyway, I can simmer down and have a smoke outside, and anyone can come and say anything they like. But not before we thank you Please. for... The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.